Well, hey everyone, welcome to today's online sermon. My name is Eden Richardson, and I'm the Discipleship Director here at First Baptist Rock Hill. In light of July 4th coming up in a few days, Pastor Hogg is going to be preaching a special sermon on liberty, how that is God's great gift to us. So before he comes and preaches from God's Word today, let me pray for us. Dear God, thank you so much for your word. God, that it is true, it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. God, I pray for Pastor Hogg as he comes and preaches on liberty today. God, that you would use this message, Lord, to, to encourage your people, Lord. Um, and God, thank you so much for the gift of liberty. And we love you so much. Amen. Happy Independence Day, everyone. You know, this is the week we celebrate liberty, which is you know, just at the core of our American DNA, our American history, you think about the Declaration of Independence, which says, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The preamble to our U.S. Constitution, we the people of the United States, and it goes on to talk about create this government to promote general welfare and secure the blessings of liberty, secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. And then the very first amendment in our constitution, not the second, third, fourth, fifth, tenth, fifteenth, the very first amendment in our U.S. constitution, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Not only the First Amendment, but the very first sentence in the First Amendment of our American Constitution talks about religious liberty. It's vital to understand religious liberty if you're going to understand American culture and history and heritage. Patrick Henry's famous speech in 1775, give me liberty or give me uh, death. There's the hymn that was written by a Baptist preacher, which we like to sing, called My Country, Tis of Thee, Sweet Land of Liberty, of Thee I Sing. In Philadelphia hangs the Liberty Bell. In New York City stands the Statute of Liberty and the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Liberty is at the core of our American DNA. But what does liberty, and in particular religious liberty, really mean? Because I'm afraid that today there is a lot of confusion There is a lot of misunderstanding and on the part of some, even apprehension about religious liberty. So today, I want to clear some of that up and share with you a biblical, theological, and philosophical basis for not only liberty, but in particular, religious liberty. Today's message is going to be a little bit different. So I invite you to open your Bible with me to the New Testament book of Acts chapter 4. 
The story we're going to read is in the early days and early weeks of the church in the city of Jerusalem, and it was growing miraculously. By this time, more than 5,000 men had accepted Jesus and been baptized into that church. That doesn't include women and children. And one day, Peter and John are preaching Jesus in the temple in Jerusalem, and the Jewish leaders had them arrested and brought them before the court. And we pick the story up in chapter 4 of Acts at verse 18, where the Bible says this, and when they had summoned them, the court, they commanded them, Peter and John, these apostles and leaders of the early church in Jerusalem, they commanded them, they ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God, you be the judge. Verse 20, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. The court threatened them and then released them, told them, don't preach anymore in Jesus' name. What did the apostles do? They got together with other believers and had a prayer meeting. They prayed for God to fill them with the Holy Spirit and give them boldness to keep speaking the name Jesus, and that is exactly what they did. The church continued to grow And these church leaders, these apostles, these disciples of Jesus were arrested again. And we read about that in chapter 5 of of Acts. And starting down in verse 27 of chapter 5, the Bible says, When they had brought them, when the court had brought these apostles, these Christians, into the court, they stood them before the council, before the court. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Because remember, they are the ones who had asked Pilate, the Roman the Roman uh, uh, leader there in Jerusalem, to have Jesus crucified. Verse 29, but Peter and the apostles answers, answered, we must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. And then the court had kind of a consultation. What are we going to do with him? You drop down to verse 40. Uh, and, and it says, after calling the apostles back in, they flogged them, which meant they beat them with a whip and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they released them. What did the apostles, the Christians do? Verse 41, so they went on their way from the presence of the council, from the court, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to be to suffer shame for his name, Jesus' name. And every day, every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus' as the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Savior. What is liberty? What is religious liberty? It means that, yes, I'm free to worship, but it means more than that. I am free to to practice whatever religion, whatever faith I want. I'm free to share my beliefs in the 
public arena, in the marketplace of ideas without being silenced or intimidated. It means that others are free to share their ideas and beliefs, even if they differ with mine in public. It means that I am free to practice my faith, free to practice my religion in public, and not forced to deny my faith, my conscience, not forced to violate my faith and my conscience by some outside force at its essence. That's what true liberty and true religious liberty is. So let's look at the biblical, theological, and philosophical basis for religious liberty. And I want to briefly talk about four principles from Scripture and from philosophy that help us understand religious liberty. The first is what throughout history has been referred to as soul competency. Some refer to it as soul freedom. It's the idea that God created each of us in his image capable of having a relationship with him, and he gave us freedom to choose. Choose to to believe in him or not believe in him. To say yes to God or to say no to God. He created, created us to have a relationship, but then gives us the freedom to make the choice. Now, that doesn't mean that every choice is equal or good or right. They are not. But it also means that we are responsible for the choice we make and will be held accountable for it. And on the judgment day, we will stand before God individually and give an account for the decision we made. So God made us to have a relationship with him, but he says you are competent to choose. Doesn't mean the choice you make is necessarily right, but I give you the freedom. You have the competency to choose to believe or not believe, but you're accountable for the choice you make. Now, if that is true, you and I must be free politically and otherwise with no coercion by the government or a king to make the choice that our conscience leads us to make. And that leads naturally to the second principle that we historically call Religious liberty, which is more than freedom to worship. Religious liberty means that I must be free to choose to believe or not believe, to worship as I please, but also to practice my faith, not only in the privacy of the four walls of the church or the privacy of the four walls of my home, but to believe, to teach, to speak, and to practice my faith, to live my faith in the public arena and not be forced to deny it or to compromise it or to violate it. That's religious liberty. Religious liberty, listen, is a right. Liberty, and in particular religious liberty, is a right given to us by God himself. It is not a concession granted to us by the government because if the government grants it to us, the government can then take it back. And that happens in many countries all over the world today. If the government gives it to us, the government can limit it. But religious liberty rightly understood both biblically and philosophically and John Locke, the famous British philosopher who influenced to a degree our founding fathers would agree with this, that religious liberty is, is a right given to humanity by God, and it is nothing that the government can control.
See, the Bible even tells us that God himself gives government its duties. And those duties are essentially to protect citizens and to punish criminals. The government has no authority over a person's soul, over a person's beliefs, over a person's faith. That the government, a king, a queen, they are not sovereign. Only God is sovereign. And sovereign God created us to love him or choose not to love him, gave us the freedom, holds us accountable. We'll be judged for the decision, but we're free to make it. And God says government's job is to protect people, punish criminals, not to control their conscience, and not to control whether or not they can practice their faith in public. Now, real quickly, that leads to the third principle, which is called the priesthood of all believers. I don't have time to develop that. Simply say that we are free politically and so on. But but as individual believers, we are also free. We have free access to God through Jesus. We don't have to go through a priest or anyone else. We have free access to the Word of God. Yes, teaching and preaching matters. But you can take the Bible, read it, and God can speak to you. And then the fourth The fourth principle that grows out of all this is what we as Baptists call local church autonomy. Local church autonomy, meaning that each local Baptist church is autonomous or self-governing. Our denomination, we are not part of a hierarchy where there are bishops above us or councils above us or denominational entities above us that can make our church do anything. If individuals are free, the church must also be free. So all of our relationships as Southern Baptists are voluntary. Voluntary. We we are not members of the York Baptist Association. We are not members of the South Carolina Baptist Convention. This church is not a member of the Southern Baptist Convention. There is no membership. Those are simply entities at various levels by which Baptist churches voluntarily cooperate work together to do ministry, to do missions, to meet needs, to educate clergy, and many, many other things. It's simply a vehicle for us voluntarily working together. So the Southern Baptist Convention cannot kick us out because we're not members. All they can do is say, you are not in good standing with us. Therefore, we will not allow you to seat messengers, representatives, delegates at our annual meetings and vote. That is it because local church freedom. So soul competency, soul freedom, religious liberty, religious freedom, priesthood of all believers, local church autonomy, a free church in a free state. These four principles of liberty are interconnected and we could talk for a long, long time about them, but I'm going to leave it at that uh, at this, this point. But there's one more thing I want to talk about in this message. And it's this, it's the way that over the years throughout history, and even today, yes, today, some people not only misunderstand religious liberty, but they misuse it and they even abuse it. Yes, there are those who hate the idea of religious liberty, but there are those who also misuse it and abuse it. And one way that happens both in the past and at times today. It's what I call liberty for me. Okay. Religious liberty for me, but not for thee. Religious liberty for me, 
but not for thee, not for you. Have you ever heard of the pilgrims? We often hear it said the pilgrims came to a, a, the new world seeking religious freedom, religious liberty. And historically, that is both true and false because they had an incomplete understanding of what religious liberty really is. You see, the pilgrims came from England. And back in England, they were a minority religious group because in England, the Anglican church was the state church, the official church, the established church. And the pilgrims were part of minority religious groups that were persecuted by the government and the church of England in that country. And so to flee that persecution, they came to the new world so they could worship, so they could practice their religion as they felt led. They wanted the freedom without persecution to practice their faith the way they believed and the way they wanted. The problem is, the problem is, when most of these new settlers arrived in America and established our colonies, most of them said, we're here for religious freedom, but they did not extend that to minority groups among them. In other words, they made the same mistake that had been made back in England. And, and I want you to think about this. Of the original 13 colonies, seven of them had what we call established churches, official churches that you had to either belong to or support in some Way and and the common way that these established churches were supported in these seven colonies was you were taxed whether you were a believer or not whether you were a member of that denomination or not you were taxed to support that church and in some cases you were not allowed to vote or hold elected office if you were not a member of the established church of that particular. Colony. Most of the established churches were either Anglican, which today in America would be the Episcopal Church, or Congregational Church, kind of a descendant, if you will, of the pilgrims. Five of the colonies did not have an established church, meaning you did not have to pay taxes to support that church. But, but, if you were going to hold elected office, especially in the legislature, you had to take a public Oath that you either believed in God, believed in Jesus, believed the Bible, and that you were a Protestant, not a Catholic. And so 12 of the 13 colonies had a way of favoring a certain denomination and punishing those who were not part of that particular church or denomination. So that's what I mean when I say Freedom of religion or religious liberty for me, but not for thee, because they they made the same mistake when they set up those colonies that had been made in England and other European countries. The only colony that had true religious liberty was the colony of Rhode Island, founded by Roger Williams, who at the time was a Baptist. I'm sure you've heard of the Boston Tea Party when they dressed as Indians and dumped tea into the harbor there in Boston protesting the tax and the fact that only one English company was allowed to sell tea in America. And uh, this famous saying or slogan that came out of that, no taxation without representation, no taxation without representation. 
What's interesting there in Massachusetts, which had the congregational church as its established church, you had to pay taxes, whether you were a member of the congregational church or not, to support that church. And there was this Baptist preacher, Isaac Backus, who addressed the legislature there in Massachusetts, and he said, all of you can avoid paying the T-tax, which you hate, You can avoid paying the tea tax simply by not buying tea. But Baptists and others cannot avoid paying taxes to support your church. And we either pay the tax or the next year you will double the tax rate. And then if we don't pay it, we go to jail. That's what I mean when I say religious liberty for me but not thee. That's our history. But what about today? What about today? There's a fairly well-known brother named Russell Moore, a lifelong Baptist who at one time was a professor of theology and dean at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. For some years, he was the president of our Southern Baptist Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. Today, he's the chief editor of Christianity Today, but he's no longer a Southern Baptist. He left. And part of it, the the, the reason was he was attacked and criticized by, by very conservative people, by some Baptists, and a, and a very harsh and, and misguided manner. It all started... It all started a few years ago when there was an Islamic group, a Muslim group, that wanted to build a mosque in a town in New Jersey, and the local town leadership refused to allow them to do it, voted down their request. And that Islamic group sued them in court. Russell Moore and the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission supported the Muslim lawsuit because they were saying that 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 town was discriminating against them building a mosque simply because they were Muslims. And a lot of people got upset with Russell Moore over that. How can any Christian support a Muslim group building a mosque? And his answer was this. Now, you need to hear this. If a town in New Jersey can tell Muslims that they cannot build a mosque, simply because they are Muslims. What is to keep liberals in San Francisco from telling a group of Baptists they cannot build a church in San Francisco simply because they are Baptists? The truth is we either believe in religious liberty or we don't. And we believe in it for everyone or we don't really understand and believe in religious liberty. Now, there are secular people making the same mistake from the opposite direction. Today, there's a lot of conversation, a lot of debate, a lot of conflict about gay rights, gay marriage, the LBGTQ community and movement, the transgender issues, and so on. And as America becomes less and less religious, and by the way, the same percentage of Americans that go to church today, it's pretty similar to what it was 30 years ago and 50 years ago. That hasn't changed. It's just that those, it used to be that those who didn't go to church still claim some faith or claim some denomination. 
Today, most of them just don't claim anything. But it's about the same percent that actually goes to church. But as the people who don't go to church become less and less religious, there is a growing gap between the moral beliefs of people who are people of faith and those who are not people of faith, between the religious and the non-religious. And that growing gap when it comes to moral beliefs is especially evident in the area of sexual ethics. And since those who are non-religious tend to be more liberal when it comes to sexual ethics, many of them see the Christian faith and the Christian religion as hostile, as hostile. And therefore they want to limit, they want to limit the influence of Christian beliefs They want to diminish the influence of Christian beliefs and in some cases even silence them, especially in the public arena. And they do that sometimes by very subtly changing definitions and the use of terms. For instance, over the last decade or so, there's been a transition on the part of some to talk about instead of freedom of religion, they talk about the freedom of worship. Now, that may not sound like much, but there's a huge difference. The freedom of religion for some has become the freedom of worship. President Obama, for instance, used the term freedom of worship a lot, not freedom of religion. And what they mean by that when you really dig deep and listen to them is that, yes, you're free to worship any way you want or not. You're free to worship how you want within the four walls of your church and the four walls of your home. But when it comes to the public expression of religion, the public expression of faith, the public expression of your beliefs and your values and your morals, we're, we're going to put some limits Because it's not freedom of religion to practice your religion. It's freedom of worship. And that is not the same freedom as freedom of religion. The public expression of religion brings influence and persuasion. And they don't want that. So it has to be limited. If we don't agree with the value system of the increasingly secular culture, then they increasingly put pressure to silence us in the public arena and say, oh, you have freedom of worship. What they're not telling us is they really don't want us to have freedom of religion. You take, for example, the case of the Christian baker in Colorado, Jack Phillips, who was sued for refusing to make a wedding cake for a gay couple getting married. He had served them previously by making cakes for them, but a wedding cake, that violated his faith, his conscience, because he believes what the Bible teaches, that marriage is a God-ordained covenant between one man and one woman. In the past, he had refused to make cakes for people that had a Halloween theme. He had refused to make cakes that had a a lewd bachelor party uh, theme to it. He had refused to make a cake celebrating the divorce, and, and, and everybody was okay with that. The culture doesn't care about that. But when it comes to the sexual ethics, especially of gay rights and LBGTQ and transgenderism, if your conscience, your faith says that making a cake for a wedding 
of two homosexuals violates your religion, violates your conscience, violates your faith, the secular culture says, too bad. Because gay rights are more important than religious rights. You have freedom of worship. But now we don't want to talk about freedom of religion. So what are we to do? I want to go back to where I started. The apostles telling the court in Jerusalem, we must obey God rather than men. We don't compromise our faith or our conscience. Now hear me. And many Baptists and conservatives need to hear what I'm saying right now. We cannot help others to properly understand religious liberty if we don't fully understand it ourselves and if we don't consistently and fairly apply it to others, including Muslims and non-believers. We cannot be selective in our application of religious liberty if we want to help the people in our culture understand and appreciate true religious liberty. The criticism of Russell Moore was so unfounded, contrary to our Baptist heritage and history, and was wrong. Because what he stood for was what Baptists have always stood for, true religious liberty for everyone. What are we supposed to do? Pray. Vote. What are we supposed to do? The same thing the early apostles did. They prayed and said, God, fill us with your Holy Spirit and make us bold. And then they continued teaching and preaching in the name of Jesus. The greatest thing you and I can do for America is to evangelize the lost. Because the more people come to a saving faith in Jesus, yes, they're going to heaven, but yes, they begin to understand what religious liberty really is. And the more people move away from religious liberty, the more people move away from faith, the less they understand religious liberty, and they move toward, well, you can practice it in your church, you can practice it in your home, but in public, we're going to put some real limits on you. So pray, vote. Obey God, but share the gospel with people you know who don't know Jesus and never stop doing that. God bless you, brothers and sisters. I'll see you next week.